to the Thousand Stories podcast. Um, I'm coming to you this time not from the podcast studio in uh, the Sequoia building at Oklahoma Department of Human Services, but I'm now coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia. We are here with a very special guest, Jim Clark, the president and CEO of Boys and Girls Clubs of America, uh, here at the Game Changers Summit. Jim, thank you for joining me. Uh, I would love a little context as to what the Game Changers Summit is. Well, thanks for having me on today, and it's a privilege to spend a little bit of time with you and also say thank you for all of your support as well. Uh, the Game Changers Summit is a convening of some of our most progressive and innovative boys and girls clubs from across the country. Not necessarily all the biggest ones, um, diversity in terms of size, geographic location, as well as the populations they serve. For example, we have representatives from the military here, as well as representatives from uh, Native America uh, here with us as well today, small towns, uh, rural America, and of course, urban America as well. And the Game Changers Summit is really about changing the game, uh, changing the game for kids. Over the past couple of years, uh, we've seen some of the needs and some of the devastating results of the pandemic exacerbate in terms of the impact it's had on kids in a unfavorable way. So it's examining that and looking at the needs today, but also 10, 15 years from now in terms of what boys and girls clubs are gonna to need to do or what we're gonna to need to be in order to really meet this changing landscape of needs that kids have. So Game Changers is about changing the game uh, for kids in America, especially the kids who need us most. Excellent, so it's an honor to be here. I just, I love the opportunity to just be around incredible servants and thought leaders in this space. It's um, also fantastic to think about there are only a couple of organizations in our nation that have the reach that the Boys and Girls Clubs of America does. Uh, and so uh, understanding what you saw and what your teams across the country saw during the pandemic is something I want to get into. But I'd love to, for you to give us a, a little understanding of scope of the organization. Not, you know, how many clubs are there? Great question. And uh, one of the really positive things about Boys and Girls Clubs are we're not only in every state, but we're literally in every community. Uh, there are almost 5,000 Boys and Girls Club locations wow. across the United States and around the globe on military bases where families live. So we're a domestic organization. However, our partnership with the armed services takes us overseas. So you think about that footprint, almost 5,000 locations, and then you add to it the number of youth that we serve. And on average in a given year, it would be about 4.3 million youth. We serve school-age kids, so roughly kindergarten through high school. And we do that at facilities, so we're a facility-based organization. Another key part of our model is our staffing model. It's driven by paid adult youth professionals that focus on the needs of kids. We are, as I said a little bit earlier, focused on kids who need us most. That could mean coming from economically challenged communities or neighborhoods or under-resourced households. Uh, it's also suburban America as well. There's needs really literally everywhere when it comes to kids. Another important part of our model is after school or out of school time. So during the school year after school, in the summer, 
during the day. So when kids aren't in school, we wanna be there to help, to serve. We're not a school, we're not home, but for many kids, we are a home away from home or a second home. And we work to augment or supplement the things they're not getting perhaps in school or perhaps not getting at home. So we're in that in-between time, uh, if you will. I think another important part of our mission and, and the work that we do is we have not strayed from the fence lines of our mission for 160 years. Uh, the first club, if you will, it wasn't a boys and girls club, it was predominantly a boys club, uh, was 1860 uh, in Hartford, Connecticut was the first location. And since that time, we've grown to, as I mentioned, five, almost 5,000 locations across the country. Uh, about 1906, so 116 years ago, there's 53 organizations, 53 clubs that came together to create the national organization or this federation of boys and girls clubs uh, that today is comprised of about 1,025 entities that make up boys and girls clubs of America. Hmm. Well, so it's, like I said, it's incredible to think about the reach that Boys and Girls Club has. Um, I, but also the level of insight that your clubs had during the pandemic. Um, I know that our experience in Oklahoma City or in Oklahoma County was one where we had a, have a we have a great partner in Tina Belsick with uh, with Boys and Girls Clubs of Oklahoma County. And as we started to see issues arise from the pandemic, um, she was on the front lines telling us at the Department of Human Services what she saw. We didn't have the same level of insight. And so much of it was around this concept of, of uh, stress and trauma for kids. It was stories of experiences that they had during the pandemic that, you know, they, that the Boys and Girls Clubs had not seen, a level of childhood trauma that was unprecedented in clubs. And so I would love to know your thoughts, especially early stage pandemic, what you, what you saw from a national perspective and then maybe we'll get into sort of what some of those innovations were uh, from many of these game changers here at this summit, I would assume. Yeah, great. Well, great question. Let me pause uh, and add something to your message about Oklahoma City. Tina Belsek is one of the game changers, and she has been a phenomenal leader uh, in Oklahoma City for a long time, and we're fortunate to have her leading the Boys and Girls Club there as a dynamic, progressive, innovative, and creative leader that is changing the game for kids in Oklahoma City. So uh, underscore and put in bold <laughs> Tina Belsack because she does a great job. Uh, you know, thinking about your question and, and really backing um, up into uh, the pandemic and, and what was taking place across uh, the country during that time, the pandemic and COVID-19 was not evenly distributed. Um, nor was the impact of COVID-19 evenly distributed in this country. Those coming from economically challenged, poor uh, neighborhoods, uh, those coming from uh, black or Hispanic um, descent, uh, th they did not fare as well as most others did uh, during this time. Uh, and certainly they didn't fare as well in school uh, when it comes to the lost learning that took place, or as I like to refer to it, um, unfinished learning. Uh, in total, uh, kids lost, for example, between four and five months of academic during uh, the roughly two years of the pandemic. Uh, 
you look at black and Hispanic kids, and it was significantly more, up to double that amount. On top of this, uh, we lost a lot of kids in terms of dropping out of high school. And although all the numbers aren't in, in terms of what that looks like, the estimates are about double uh, the number of kids dropping out of high school. That doesn't include the number of kids that have just not reconnected. Mm -hmm. So every community, every city, every uh, neighborhood in this country um, has a number of kids that just aren't there anymore. Um, so this is a, a big challenge, of course, when we think about um, what's happened. On top of it, to your point, uh, stress and anxiety and trauma in kids' lives was present long before the pandemic. In fact, you go back five, six, seven years, roughly, Yale University did a study on the level of stress in kids' lives, and at that point, it surpassed that of their parents. So th this started a while ago. It was only exacerbated during the pandemic in terms of the anxiety and stress that kids had to face. And again, this was not evenly distributed. Um, poor families far, fared far worse uh, when it comes to uh, these dynamics for kids. A um, lot come from households that are just difficult to concentrate in. Uh, so boys and girls clubs certainly saw this um, happen and, and have seen the impact on kids and families uh, due to the pandemic and the trauma that's taken place uh, during this time. Keep in mind also, it wasn't just the pandemic over the past couple of years that added to this trauma. We saw a surge in social inequities uh, take place. Uh, we saw the murder of George Floyd that triggered a, a whole nother movement in our country. Again, not new, um, but it reminded us in a very graphic and ugly way some of the challenges that parts of our nation face. So there was a convergence of, if you will, of many different factors coming in at the same time. Prolonged, of course, was the pandemic that just added to this because some of those community assets that were ever present no longer were because they closed. Uh, the early days, we forget already, the early days of the pandemic, uh, everything shut down, uh, including boys and girls clubs, schools shut down, uh, work shut down, uh, e even restaurants, everything shut in communities. And boys and girls clubs saw that too. I think the difference was that quickly boys and girls clubs reopened because of the need in communities. And that starts to lead into uh, another part of your question. Uh, communities, uh, civic leaders, business leaders quickly saw the need to have assets available in a community to serve, for example, children of essential workers. Uh, they had to go in whether it's a hospital or law enforcement or transportation workers, uh, their kids weren't in school. Uh, they were left at home. So instantly this need came about to help uh, kids that parents were not staying home. They had to go in, into work. Uh, Boys and Girls Clubs rose to that occasion. Uh, we also had to figure out quickly how to provide additional services to kids and families. Simple things like meals. Uh, little, little known fact about boys and girls clubs, on any given year, uh, we serve around 80, 90 million meals wow. to kids in America after school and during the summer. That number grew dramatically by tens of millions during the early days of the pandemic because 
schools were closed. That's the primary source for meals at noon, and in many cases, breakfast, and in some cases, the afternoon or evening as well. So that resource, that asset was gone overnight. And it also impacted families because families didn't have access to supplemental food that they normally would get from a food bank or a, a different resource in a community. So here too, Boys and Girls Clubs quickly responded to that need by not just serving, having meals available, whether it was grab and go or come in and eat uh, available for kids, but they reached out to families, they reached out to neighborhoods. Uh, they got creative, they set up transportation routes to take vans and buses filled with food door to door, house by house, uh, to feed neighborhoods and families. They set up the ability for families to come in, drive in, do a drive through and provide them food uh, to, to serve. We have videos of cars lined up, hundreds and hundreds of cars lined up at boys and girls clubs just to get food for their families mm -hmm. during some of these darkest days where, frankly, no one knew what to do um, and didn't have the emergency resources or ability to set up distribution quickly uh, when it came to, to meals. We also had to pivot when it came to helping support learning or, or program. Uh, thank God we had a device-based uh, app, if you will, uh, application for kids to use to deliver remote programming. Uh, it wasn't as robust as we had hoped, but we quickly added a, a lot uh, to that uh, platform, that digital platform, so that kids had access to something. And then clubs took it one step further and reached out and made contact and obviously connected through technology, um, even if it meant using some old technology, a phone, to check in and just see how kids and families were doing and mm -hmm. what they needed and to make them aware of some connectivity in terms of program and resources. And then as the pandemic wore on um, and schools remained closed, but remote learning, remote education uh, did start, uh, Boys and Girls Clubs opened and converted their cafeterias, they converted their gymnasiums, they con converted rooms, uh, hallways, they converted lobbies uh, to learning centers and they used the staff as proctors if you will to help kids that didn't have a place to go school was closed maybe by now mom or dad or the caregiver um, or, or guardian was back at work or maybe they were working from home and just didn't have the ability to help their elementary aged student for example that needs some ongoing monitoring, uh, Boys and Girls Clubs rose and went beyond to that occasion to make that service available for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids across uh, the nation. So I guess my point would be that uh, Boys and Girls Clubs were extremely flexible, agile, and able to move quickly to meet these unmet needs in communities. Well, I'm so thankful that we're having this conversation because again, we saw it in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma County, and with other partners as well, but we saw systems that were really never designed to serve in ways that they, that as schools were closed, that was the system that had been built to serve in whatever way, and, and other organizations stood up to serve. And Boys and Girls Club, in my opinion, in Oklahoma City was at the forefront of that. And so, but, but most folks don't see that. They don't understand the role that so many 
agencies, nonprofits, um, organizations had to fill that uh, was a, a significant gap for families. And so uh, I think what I, I, I know what we will see um, in future periods is, is ongoing evolutions that come from the flexibility and the innovative thoughts and, and programs that were stood up during this pandemic. What, what do you see as, um, you know, everybody always wants to know, okay, so it's been three years of a pandemic. What have we learned as a system from it and what are we gonna take going forward? How are we gonna transform things? So what do you think the, the ongoing impact is for Boys and Girls Clubs? There's several and it's a great question. And I would also add that uh, it, it's not a, snapshot in time there is continued learning happening today for sure uh, because th things still aren't quite back to a, a normal level so it begins with technology um, I think boys and girls clubs in particular up their game in terms of remote program but I would change that a little bit and say we upped our game and changed our game to create remote experiences um, boys and girls clubs are about experiences. Uh, again, more of a, a context point here, but boys and girls clubs focus on creating opportunities and experiences for kids in America that don't get those experiences that some kids get, other kids don't. We're the ones that are the equalizer. We level the playing field. So as you can imagine, and, you, and as you said, when all of a sudden that facility was closed, um, or the Boys and Girls Club wasn't open yet. We had to create these remote experiences for youth. So it challenged our staffs across the nation to customize and to create a remote experience, not just follow this you know, app or follow this mm -hmm. technology or this link that I'm sending you. How do we do interactive experiences? So we had to get, get good at that really quickly. Um, so that would be one whole space when it comes to technology. Uh, another we touched on, and that's the, the, the trauma, uh, the uh, adverse experiences that youth ex had during the, the pandemic and what happened in their lives. And with that, uh, Boys and Girls Clubs pivoted really quickly uh, when it comes to not just identifying what some of those challenges are, but how to help. Um, some clubs had already put in place um, a level of social workers, if you will, uh, counselors that are seasoned professionals in this space, but but very few. Um, so our staff had to get trained, um, not to be clinical, but to be able to identify this and have the simple, easy to use playbooks to work with kids to help them through this. And if it was more severe, more serious than was uh, able to be uh, managed by a staff person. It was to be able to access the resources in other places of the community uh, to help. So we adopted a very trauma-informed approach, a trauma-informed practice, and we quickly revised our programming to include those practices, whether it was about economic literacy or about workforce readiness. Hmm. <laughs> That's uh, that's fantastic. What what's interesting to me is as I think about Boys and Girls Club, my 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 prior conception or my prior understanding of Boys and Girls Clubs before I really had a strong relationship was, um, you know, this is you. It's after school. It's basketball. It's you know, it's it's pretty. Uh, sort of physical activity, you know, focused. It's focused on physical activity and that sort of thing, which of course, that's some of the, the success outcomes for Boys and Girls Clubs sure. are healthy living and, 
and those sorts of um, values. But as I've engaged, it's interesting that how much the organization, especially my experience, has evolved into um, really incredible programming like um, technology and drones and 3D printing and I mean it's it's truly a uh, an extension uh, seemingly an extension of the education system that provides um, kids and families in low-income communities a real opportunity to have deeper experiences that and you sort of mentioned it that other that kids who don't live in those communities may have uh, just by virtue of the the sort of private system for sure and you know, to be clear about that, and sometimes uh, this gets a little political, and I don't mean it that way, but mm-hmm. we have become a society of haves and have-nots, mm-hmm. and it's, it's pretty simple to see that. Um, you're right, and what I was referring to is boys and girls clubs work to provide those experiences that a lot of kids have um, and a lot of kids don't have. So we want to provide those experiences for the kids that don't have it. Access. Um, Think about the American dream, the American promise. What is this really about? It's about access to experiences and opportunities. And that's what boys and girls clubs do. Um, I'm pretty patriotic. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Definitely bully about America. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever challenges we have today, we will figure it out and move forward. Boys and Girls Clubs want to make sure kids are able to move forward with that Mm. uh, in a very equitable, inclusive way. So we've believed that for 162 years. And inclusion and equity have been part of our mission that whole time. So back to some of the important parts of this and and not just the learnings that have uh, come out of it, but some of the things that we've been able to to accomplish truly are miraculous because uh, not only did we do some heroic things uh, during the pandemic, but we were able to really advance uh, our ability to provide services, to provide program for kids. And, you know, you got it. What else do we do? You know, we've know, been known for 100 years as the, the swim and gym. Mm-hmm. Um, today, it's about academic success, good character and citizenship, and healthy lifestyles. Those are our core competencies. It's about developing the whole youth, the whole individual, uh, not just one part of it, but the entire child. Um, we serve elementary age, middle school age, and high school aged kids. And so obviously there's some diversity in our programming and and how we go about it. Um, But it really is about ensuring that kids have a great future. Our mantra, uh, tagline, if you will, positioning statement for those marketers uh, is doing whatever it takes to ensure kids and teens have a great future. And so inside of that, you start to unpack What does it take to make that happen? Um, We know in America, education is also the great equalizer. So supporting academic success is a imperative uh, in our system today. And we pay attention to that. We study that. Um, We take time to understand what is needed, what experiences kids have to have in order to drive better outcomes in their lives. So for example, we look at uh, outcomes in kids and in academics and health and in and and in life and inside of that uh, we know when kids have a great experience at a boys and girls club 
for example, in academic success, they're going to get more A's and B's in school. They're going to be more likely to graduate from high school. They're going to be more likely to go on to something post-secondary. Um, they're going to get more exercise than their peers get. All of these things matter, and we study that and report on that and evaluate that. Uh, so we know the work we're doing makes a difference in the lives of kids. Now, this is also about economic and social mobility. Um, no question about it. Uh, we're instilling inside of kids and, and families, frankly, this ability to go on and do something that they would never have possibly dreamed of. Uh, it is the notion that the zip code doesn't have to define where you're going. Um, we make sure that kids have a path, a journey line to become whatever they want to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to that end, the conversation around economic mobility, we also, um, earlier when we were talking about what was going to, so what did the organization learn and what would you take into the next sort of uh, life cycle, you talked uh, for a second about workforce. And you and I have talked a fair amount about um, boys and girls clubs beginning to play more of a role. They do some in some parts of the nation, but more of a role in the workforce system. Uh, I mean, you have you serve 4.3 million youth every year, and I'm a firm believer that workforce doesn't begin when you match a person with a job. It begins when you ask a child what they want to do when they grow up. And so I would love your thoughts on a little deeper on the, the idea of boys and girls clubs um, really participating in a deep way and a systemic way in uh, workforce programs going forward. Yeah, let me back up uh, just a second because I, I didn't give you a lot of the answer <laughs> on the things we, we learned as we were going through this pandemic period and, and really continue today. I think there's a couple other areas that are really important. We, we've actually touched on them, but um, another really learning and, and piece of what we do today is really helping with this unfinished learning. So this goes back to the academic success. That was an issue, as I pointed out, during the pandemic. We are going to have the residuals of that for decades to come. Um, it's just a reality. So there's this unfinished learning piece. There's the trauma that kids have had to deal with that we've had to pivot and change to address. Um, and then there's the, the workforce piece. Um, and I, I mentioned equity and inclusion too, but the, the workforce piece is, is another area. Again, uh, not new. Uh, we've been focused on this for decades. But what's been acutely in our face is the reality that there's a huge mismatch in this country when it comes to jobs available and skilled workforce. And obviously kids, teens that are coming out of you know school or boys and girls clubs, wherever, um, if they don't have the skills necessary to fill the jobs that are open, it's not going to help the situation. So we've backed into this as well. And it's not a just teenage program, as you alluded to. This really starts in the elementary ages, and it starts with essential skills. A lot of people call them soft skills. Um, these are things like problem solving, um, interaction with people, um, innovation would be one, customer service, you know, how you talk to people and, and how you problem solve and how you interact. These are all skills that employers today uh, are looking for. They, they can train you 
on the technical skills of mm -hmm. the job. Uh, but if you don't have some of these essential skills already embedded, it's really hard to teach those and hard to learn those. And then it goes on to you know the job awareness, career awareness, and then it goes on to the preparation and everything from you know application to resume building to applying, interviewing, all of those things. And then, of course, there's hard skills. And at the end, really is a job. It could be an internship. It could be a part-time job. And for some, it's going to be a job. Our goal is if a teenager leaves the Boys and Girls Club, that they are prepared to get a job that is family life supporting. And yes, sure, there's probably some jobs leading up to that. But at some point, we want to make sure that they're able to get a job that can support a family or support themselves. So some of this is you know, not professional um, skills. Uh, some of this is trades. Um, some of this is tech, 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 you know, mm -hmm, skills, sure. um, technicians, um, all of that's part of it. So it's really about preparing kids to be able to get a job or go into the military. That's mm -hmm. an option as well. Um, and some will go on to four-year colleges. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's an option uh, uh, also. I, I think where we're headed with all of that is uh, with workforce and, and really with the work we do with kids is to be able to ensure all kids that come to a Boys and Girls Club uh, someday are able to either go on to a four-year college or uh, are going to get a job, and we can make sure that happens. So that's where we're headed. So much of what you've talked about, again, it, I, it just strikes me as so far outside of, again, prior to my time in this seat, uh, of my understanding of what a Boys and Girls Club was. And so I think this is so valuable because the community just needs to know this story um, I think people drive by a Boys and Girls Clubs or they see the logo that they've recognized for years and they have a preconceived notion. But you're talking about, you, and you've used the words, the whole person, that you're, you're working to address the, the health outcomes, the citizenship, and I mean, just the whole person. And one of the things that you and I've talked about also prior to this is that we, we can't do it all, right? Uh, Boys and Girls Club can't solve for every single component, which is so impactful because for me, because you all, I, I have a perception now that you are one of the best partnership organizations in our nation. I've mentioned it to you before that um, it seems like when I go visit new models or get an understanding for uh, a specific concept that's happening, I seem to always run into Boys and Girls Club partnered with somebody else. Talk to me about that culture that you're trying to build around partnerships. Yeah, thank you for recognizing that and thank you for seeing it and kind of registering it in your mind too because it is intentional and it's, it's not something that we've always been known for, um, but it is something we're proud of and it's something that we believe is the key to the future. And it's not just around money uh, when it comes right down to it. Th this is about being able to leverage different community assets for the betterment of, in our case, kids, children, teenagers. And frankly, partnerships are really the only way it's going to work in the future. And, and I mean that sincerely because uh, sure there's a lot of different agencies a lot of different programs different services in every community and some are small some are big some are very focused and and boutique if you will um, I think it takes a collection of of all of this to, to, to make it happen uh, some are 
public government funded, some are private. Um, th these things matter, and these partnerships have to be with government, you know, public-private partnerships, um, and they have to be with other providers, service providers in a community. Uh, so one simple one is with schools. Mm -hmm. um, I think the progressive school districts, the progressive school superintendents have realized this for a while. Uh, unfortunately, not all have uh, yet uh, in this nation uh, because it's, it's not about competition and that those are, you know, those are my kids and I don't want anybody else to look good because they're able to, you know, get more success in terms of uh, uh, outcomes for a kid. Those days are gone. It is gonna take everyone working together. You know, the, the old adage, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, and the more we believe that uh, and the more we can form concrete, intentional productive partnerships the better it will be. Now, I would also add, um, and, and it's something I think we've gotten good at, and I know, for example, Tina's gotten very good at this in Oklahoma City, is these aren't superficial partnerships. Um, none of us are interested in that. Uh, I don't care how good it looks on paper. If it's not making a meaningful difference or having an impact on a child, uh, we shouldn't be doing it. Um, because the vanity type partnerships just to, to look good are also a thing of the past in my mind. Mm -hmm. So these are real. Um, these are where both entities have skin in the game, where both entities put this at the highest level in their organization with their CEO, with their board, so that there's attention, that there's focus um, on it, that there are true goals, measurable goals to the partnership that we are going to achieve uh, together. These are the components of a partnership that matters, and that's exactly what we're focused on. Um, so yes, some are big partnerships with schools uh, to provide continuity of, of learning or, or supplemental learning. Um, some are with, as I mentioned earlier, with the military to provide our services to kids on military bases um, or in, in Native America. We are, Boys and Girls Clubs is the largest provider of youth services on tribal lands in America. Hmm. And I think that says a lot too about a relationship and, and what this word partner really means because those are sovereign nations. Um, separately governed and when it comes to putting their most precious assets in someone's hands we're proud uh, that it's boys and girls clubs that's beautiful so I can attest to the uh, true uh, nature of the partnership with boys and girls clubs um, I'll, I'll tell a brief story and uh, I'm sure I'll get into it on another podcast or we'll or we'll sit and talk with Tina directly about it but um, during the pandemic I, I was I was share one number in April of 2019, at the Department of Human Services, that's, a, that's the, uh, the year before the pandemic, right. we received 767 calls to the Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline from educators. In April of 2020, the first full month of the pandemic, we received 57. We were down 710 calls. Of course, we know in times of stress like that, instances of child abuse and neglect are actually on the rise. In fact, uh, um, is, uh, calls to domestic violence hotlines were up roughly 16% in that same period. But we were way down, and, and uh, child welfare organizations across the country were wrestling with what to do, how to handle that, how to address it, how to meet those kids and find those kids when they're no longer in schools. Of course, because schools were closed and that was the safety net that had been developed over the generations to identify abuse and neglect. And I was on vacation 
as we were wrestling on this with my, my family in Colorado and I get a phone call from Tina and she said, and this was in June of uh, 2020, she said, Justin, I think your kids are showing up at Boys and Girls Clubs. And that's when she started telling stories that they're difficult to talk about. And when we talk with Tina at some point, she will cry even now, two, two years later. I, I know it because I know her. Uh, but, but it was a true relationship to be able to call on vacation, to, to immediately jump in and the two of us start solutioning together. And the outcome of that was standing up 52, what we call community hope centers, wrapping resources around providers like Boys and Girls Clubs, serving 3,000 kids and families um, between uh, between uh, August 1st, 2020 and December 31st, 2020. And so um, those relationships are required. It's not just this, like you said, vanity partnership where we put our logos next to one another. It is truly knowing one another so that when there are times of stress, we have the muscles built to address those, to innovate around those. And I'm, I'm confident, and I, because I know it, that Boys and Girls Clubs across the country have stood up during that period of time. You shared it with me. Uh, we've heard some examples of that. And um, I honestly just, I want to express my gratitude as somebody who lives in these systems for the culture that you've built, the organization that you're running, that have been around for 160 years, serving four million plus kids every year it matters. The people who work on the front lines in your organization matter. Uh, I know Mr. AJ, um, that guy matters um, in the lives of dozens of kids. Uh, and they, he, then their lives are better because he is in them, in it. And so uh, I just wanna say thank you for all of that the last few years, but 11 years at the, as CEO of uh, Boys and Girls Clubs of America, your prior decade of service in Milwaukee as, as director there. Um, thank you for giving your life to our, to our kids. Well, Justin, thank you uh, for, for the compliment, but you know, it takes two to tango. And um, you deserve credit as well because uh, you've been a receptive partner, um, but you've been a progressive partner as well. And just hearing that, uh, that the relationship, as you pointed out, and the comfort of that relationship that Tina could call you yeah. no matter what time of day or wherever <laughs> you were on vacation, I think says a lot about you and uh, what you believe in and obviously all the things we've talked about today. I would add uh, that I see that type of relationship and partnership also growing with with our public sector. Um, you know, today, uh, right now, we could send a text or an email to Secretary Walsh, uh, Department of Labor, the, uh, the federal level, or Cardona Education, and uh, if they weren't in, in the middle of a speech, they would get back to us. Um, and it's just so rewarding and gratifying to see this unison around some of the challenges in our country and the willingness to work together to solve them. And this really is what the partnership or the relationship uh, piece is all about. And I think the more uh, we see that in this country, whether it's locally or at the federal level, the better off kids and families who need us most are going to be. Absolutely. I th thank you for saying that because uh, the whole purpose behind this podcast is to start to try to dispel some of the public narrative that everything is broken and 
uh, and that there's corruption everywhere. There are actually, for every one bad story that you hear, there are a thousand incredible stories of relationships and partnerships and service to our communities, and that's what we're here to share those. So thank you for joining me today. Sure. Uh, late at night in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, I appreciate uh, the friendship and the opportunity to be together, and I'm uh, looking forward to the next time we're here. You got it. Thank you. Thank you.